Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Code Divine for August 25th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, lots of topics tonight. Here in a few minutes, we're each going to lay out our plans uh, for retaking the Senate on behalf of the Democrats in 2020. We're doing a one-year job, not a two- or three-cycle job, if you will. Um, But we'll do that in a few minutes. But until then, we've got all kinds of topics with some new and intriguing things that we've never discussed before. But one that we have talked about is, A, Donald Trump making outlandish statements, and, B, you know, trade wars. We've touched on those before. And the China... Um, U.S. economic relations intensified, and that's kind of maybe par for the course, unfortunately, in some ways in recent years. But then Donald Trump's reaction and the level of control he has on American companies is a whole nother part. Uh, Just kind of first laying this out, um, this impending trade war seemed to intensify and it looks like it's going to involve a lot of different aspects of our economy and people are getting very concerned about the overall economic health tim what are you kind of hearing about all that well yeah we are obviously now in a full-fledged trade war um and this round of the trade war is really going to start hitting the consumers, the American household. Uh, According to studies, this trade war will cost the average household about $1,000 a year while while it's going on Um, because retailers' stocks are suffering on multiple items such as clothing, shoes, oh, electronics, toys, um, and see 70% of economic activity in this country is directly tied to consumer spending, uh, and that's going to get hit hard, and if it does, then the economy could tank. Um, so this is unlike the previous tariffs, which were hitting more like uh, farm goods, for instance, that, you know, the federal government is subsidizing, that sort of thing. This is getting closer to home now. People will actually start to see this in their wallets. And Trump just keeps up in the ante. He's He'll jump up and tweet, no, I didn't mean 15%. I'm going to do 20% and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, You know, he has this insane desire to prove to the world, hey, I'm a tough guy. You know, I'm a tough guy. Nobody's going to outdo me. And so, uh, of course, China's responding, and uh, uh, the rest is is in the Twitter universe, right, guys? 
Yes. Uh, Catherine, um, kind of looking at this, this, you know, this is a double whammy politically as far as um, the actual economic uh, situation. There's kind of the people that look to the future and see what he's doing now. And then later, if it does become, you know, end up in a major economic downturn, it's going to have a second uh, impact. Let's just look at the first impact. How much of a hit do you think Donald Trump's already taking or will take just in what he's doing right now? Um, well, I don't think it'll change his face. They'll all, you know, hoot and holler for him until they can't afford to buy groceries or put gas in their cars because they're spending money, more money on groceries and other, you know, school supplies and clothing and, um, you know, so many Americans are living, uh, you know, they're, they don't have any savings. They don't have, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck. And as those paychecks don't go as far as they used to, uh, that's when it starts to hurt. But I think it's going to be, it's going to take a lot to, to, for him to, for this to affect his base. I think they'll just blame it on China. The other thing he keeps saying is that China's going to pay the, tariffs like i wish he'd stop saying that because we're we're going to pay the tariffs we the american people the consumers so uh but i mean i think if if as tim says that you know it really does start to affect buying power and um you know the cost of you know especially with the holidays approaching if people can't you know have a really nice christmas i think or holiday, whatever, um, I think that can start to eat away, but not at his base of support. It'll eat away at, you know, suburban, uh, moderate, who are already on the fence anyway. So I don't know. What do you think, David? Well, and I think Trump has two bases. Uh, He has these hardcore you know, people that probably weren't as politically active before, the folks that you see at the rallies that they interview on shows like The Daily Show and Jordan Klepper and everywhere else. Then you have these Republicans that are, go along with this just because they want the other benefits like the Supreme Court justices and the um, tax cuts and whatever else. And so you have two bases. I, I don't know. Which portion leaves him first? I don't think this initial wave, I think y'all agree, both of you, it's not going to hit him. Now, if if the economy does tank, George Bush got down to what, about 25% approval rating was all, in set, all was said and done. If the economy goes south, that's when some folks might start leaving him, um, you know, because – George W. Bush at least conducted himself in a much more professional manner than Donald Trump. So one would think with a crappy economy, with the rest of Donald Trump's shenanigans, uh, he would suffer just as much as Donald Trump. But if he doesn't, maybe that's one more thing that's changed about politics. Uh, Tim, do you think that if – and we really don't want it to, but if the economy goes south, unemployment numbers do rise, um, is that what changes things? Oh, I mean, if the if the economy goes south, all bets are off. I believe that is one fundamental of presidential election politics that is going to hold. I still believe pe- 
vote their pocketbooks. And even though his hardcore base would never leave him, it would ruin any chance that Donald Trump had of actually expanding his base of support, which he really is going to need to do at least some, because there's no way he's going to pull this perfect little inside electoral straight that he pulled before without, uh, you know, some stronger votes from maybe some Republicans that voted Libertarian last time and, and, and that sort of thing. He just cannot depend on the exact same scenario to develop for him to win that he won last time because too many things are different, uh, especially the fact that he is now the incumbent and he will be running on his record, and the economy is a major, major, major piece of any president's uh, re-election effort. If it's good, they win. If it's bad, they normally get punished. So he's got to have the economy, David, and, and that's that's just all there is to it. Yes, I mean, and I don't know that it's still enough. If you look, I mean, Fox News had a poll that they reposted with some analysis on Political Wire, and against every single Democratic candidate, he was at 39 and 40 percent. It didn't matter who they put him up against. Well, Their numbers fluctuated, uh, but Donald Trump was 39, 40, well, and, and, and that's that, not going to uh, get him reelected. That, what do you think, that, Tim? Well, I, I'm thinking that basically Donald Trump is still running against the generic Democrat because the Democrats don't have their nominee yet. When they get their nominee, if Trump is still running at 39 and 40 percent and his opponent is 10 points ahead of him uh, in the general election campaign and him an incumbent, then he is in some serious, 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 serious trouble. But again, and he's going to get up to all kinds of shenanigans. Then, oh, it'll be the filthiest campaign in the history of this country. That, uh, but still, with all that, Trump still needs the economy. He needs the economy. He's got to have the economy to have any chance of winning. And if we go into a recession, uh, you know, I just don't see how he can win. Then I, I just yeah. don't see any way. Well, and, and i tell you another thing that I think is important about the economy, and that leads right into our next topic. There is a situation he loses even with a you know decent to good economy, um, but uh, some Republicans in different places are managed to exceed his vote total by a few points and win re-election in either Senate seats or House seats. Uh, I don't think they could retake the House. Uh, with him losing, I, I don't think there's the you know political calculus for that. But um, you could have him lose and hold on to the Senate. But if he really tanks hard, that's when our next topic kind of comes into fruition. How does uh, how do the Democrats retake the Senate? Because obviously, if you don't retake the Senate, it's going to be a gridlock government uh, for a, the next Democratic president. And that really probably doesn't matter which one of the 20-some-odd candidates it may be. So let's start with that. Um, Catherine, we, Tim and I, before you came on, we were trying to figure out, do we want to go step-by-step? Step? Do we want to lay the whole thing out? Uh, 
Tim's got it where he needs to probably lay more of the thing out. I, I have a feeling you may too. So kind of tell us either your first step or if you want to lay all your plan out about how Democrats would retake the Senate in one cycle. Okay. The first thing, we have to pick a really good candidate to run for president, someone that can motivate voters to come out and vote and who also will be uh, willing and capable to help in the Senate races. So not someone who's going to, you know, run exclusively on a national level. It's going to travel and, and bring other people in to help run the Senate. Second thing is we have to raise a, a ton of money. Um, we need to have very um, robust campaigns against some of these candidates. Um, I don't think we can win Kentucky. I'm concerned about Alabama. Uh, I think if Roy, if they pick Roy Moore again, which would be kind of mind-boggling, but if they do, then we have a chance. But almost any other candidate, I think it's going to be really hard for Doug Jones to hold on to that seat. But we need to just we need to raise a lot of money and um, be very uh, aggressive and uh, smart and use social media and you know I'm 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 almost at the point where I don't think uh, television unless it's affordable is worth it. All the numbers that I see about it, all the um, spending that doesn't seem to have an impact. Um, I think we need to focus on more uh, modern and um, targeted um, advertising and we, and then GOTV. I think that's five. Okay. And and just kind of talk about your point. I think with younger voters in particular, and I mean by younger, I'm probably mean like, maybe 60 and under, um, but with older voters, I think you could mix some TV in with targeted races where you think that you could um, pick off some votes uh, against the candidate. Um, there are probably some places that you could still yeah, um, pick that. the right TV shows. Be, I think we have to be very um, judicious about it because I think one of the things, and this is um, one of the things – that happens in these campaigns is that these uh, consultants and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to point any fingers, but consultants come in and they make money on the ad buys. So they're all constantly pushing these ad buys and they're not, I don't think they're always as um, strategic as they could be. And I just think we need to be very, I, I think we need to be very, uh, deliberate with everyone's money. Like this is all where if we are all going to contribute to these efforts, we want to know that our money is being spent uh, carefully and strategically. Yeah. And I'll say this, I know used to, and it may still be the same, hadn't worked in it uh, or been to conventions in several cycles, but used to, you got paid on percentage of points and points is like how many ads you run, how much how much viewership is there, and you get paid on a percentage. So therefore, you're right, massless. They want more ads on more shows that have more viewers, and they get paid a, a bigger percentage. 
when you're looking at this more surgically, that's not a good um, payment structure for candidates and candidate committees and whatnot. So that's probably what needs to change. But then in the same vein, if we do um, online ads, and you need to, but in a lot of cases you're buying Facebook and uh, Twitter and, and YouTube and some of these uh, social media groups that have been manipulated and left themselves open to manipulation. So unfortunately oh, you don't control all these means, and so you're going to have to you know, deal with somebody at some point. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. There's yeah. no perfect uh, solution, but I do think that we need to be much more strategic. And I mean, you remember all those ads we saw in 2018? They were, it was unnecessary. There were like so many ads; it was unnecessary. Yeah. And people, yeah. Don't, watch, people don't watch TV the same way as they used to. You know, they fast yeah. forward through commercials, they DVR things. They don't see. They don't see them. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, ads are DVD'd over, or people under uh, 30 are all watching everything on Netflix and Hulu, and they're not right. even getting those ads. Um, you know, James Carville's added uh, adage about, you know, run an ad until people vomit when they see it, then you just about run it enough. Well, if people aren't even watching it, nobody's vomiting. So, um, exactly. you know, that's kind of a problem. Well, Tim, uh, I may, you may have taken a bit different approach. You can lay out part of your plan or all of your plan. Just kind of uh, lay out what you want to. Well, let me precurse what, uh, what I'm going to say by, by, by laying this on you. It's going to be a very uphill battle for us to retake the Senate, even though the Republicans are defending 22 seats. And the Democrats are only defending 12. There's just not that many golden pickup opportunities out there. Uh, I think there might be like two or three Republicans defending their seats in states that that Hillary Clinton um, won by five points or more, for instance. Um, So we we have to look at it like that. So – Therefore, I'm going to say the first thing that has to happen in order for us to retake the Senate, Donald Trump has to lose, and not only does he has to lose, have to lose, I think he needs to lose pretty convincingly. I still believe that landslides do not stop at state lines, and I think a lot of people can get swept under uh, who have made their bed with Trump. If he loses by, you know, seven, eight, ten percentage points, something like that, nobody expects that to happen. But I think that that needs to happen for us to have any chance of winning the Senate. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing I'm going to say is I believe the Democrats, even though they're down 53-47, and if they pick up three seats and win the presidency. They are in control of the Senate because of the vice president. But I believe they're going to have to pick up at least four seats uh, because I just don't see any way Doug Jones can win, especially if Bradley, somebody like Bradley Byrne over there is the nominee and not that fool Roy Moore. And even if Moore is the nominee this time, Alabama is Donald Trump's strongest state right now. He's more popular in Alabama than any other state in the country. 
and and I just don't see that many people in Alabama that are going to vote for Trump and vote for Doug Jones. I just can't see that happening. Uh, so therefore, I'm going to say we're going to have to pick up four seats uh, because we're going to lose the Alabama seat. Number three, for us to have any chance to win in the Senate, I believe that the states of Colorado and Arizona and Maine are must pickups. We have got to win all three of them. Now, I know I just said Susan Collins has got to lose, but now for the first time, because of her lowered approval ratings, because she voted for Kavanaugh, that's what did it to her up there, uh, I believe that that now her seat is in play where it probably was not. Therefore, we've got to win those three, Colorado, Arizona, and Maine. Number four, there's going to be some other states that have to become competitive, obviously, that we right now do not think of as competitive. Number five, and in order, here are the states I think we need to go after. Georgia, Montana, North Carolina, and Kansas. Now, I say those last two because Tillis might really be vulnerable, not only from an attack by the Democrats, but by attacks from the right in his own party because they just think he's not conservative enough. Uh, because he actually was defending Bob Mueller, which is a big no-no in Trump world. And I say <laughs> Kansas because, you know, Pat Roberts is retiring. Seat's going to be open. And we've done some good things in Kansas lately, and Donald Trump's approval rating is running about even in Kansas right now, although it's a Republican state, and I think he will eventually win it. I don't think he'll win it by as much as a Republican normally would. Kansas has been known to vote for a lot of Democrats in statewide races, and I think that seat could be on uh, on the table. So 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 that's how. But but right now, I. I I've got to say, David, that a one or two seat pickup is more likely. Well, I have a lot of the same thoughts as y'all. Um, I will say, I mean, without go, you know, without saying, if we don't win the presidency, we're not going to win the Senate, and it really probably isn't going to matter. Now, in some weird universe where we could win the Senate and lose the presidency, I guess you could stop Donald Trump in a second term, but. That place probably doesn't exist here on planet Earth. Um, so uh, we'll go with that as a given. Now, picking up seats, number one, and I will say this. Other than the Alabama seat, I don't think any other Democratic-held seats are really in play as much as the, R, the NRCC would probably – or the N, whatever the Senate committee's called, whatever acronym that is, um, would try to have you believe. But the number one seat, I agree with you, Tim, is Colorado. Um, John, even without John Hickenlooper, I think um, Cory Gardner was probably in the most peril, most Republican mm-hmm. peril for sure. Um, number two, Martha McSally, that poll that I sent you all during the week, 
Mark Kelly's already leading her, and he doesn't have the nomination. And I think even another candidate um, got the nomination. They could uh, also defeat Martha McSally because I, I got get the sense, A, she didn't have her base completely locked down. And then I think just a lot of the more swing persuadable voters just don't really respect how she was appointed after she lost um, in 2018. And so those are the first two. Um, I think the third seat, I agree. Um, in Maine, I really, I showed y'all that video, and I forget her name, but she is the Speaker of the House of, of Maine, and she looks like a really impressive candidate, the kind of candidate that only runs if they think they can win. Um, but, but I really liked her intro video about how she got into politics, and I, I thought it really resonated, and she seemed very um, relatable. And so, and, of course, Susan Collins um, is vulnerable, and, and Brett Kavanaugh's part of that, although I think it's just a general trend of, well, I'm actually going to stand up to Republicans for once, and she never does. And so I think there's probably a lot of voters that feel they've been uh, tricked by her too many times up there that may have voted for her in the past. And so that's the three pickups, and of course that gets you to the, the tie scenario where a vice president could break all ties. Um, but then comes Alabama. I think, I, you know, what, 80% of incumbents win uh, in Senate races. So I don't think Doug Jones is completely out of it. I mean, hopefully he's been doing um, a lot of constituency service. Hopefully he's been making the rounds to a lot of neutral events where he gets in front of maybe more moderate Republicans, more persuadable voters, and, and just does some good government to where maybe he can pull some people over running against a non-Roy Moore candidate. Um, so I wouldn't put him completely out, and especially if Donald Trump does lose in a bit of a landslide, he may run ahead of the Democratic nominee by, you know, say four to five points. Maybe that's enough if Donald Trump is in single digits, even in states like Alabama. Um, so I, I wouldn't count him out, but I think there's three non-incumbent Democrats that have a better shot than he does. So that gets you to four, but then in case he loses, you need some other other opportunities. I agree with you that um, in the South, you've got North Carolina and you've got Georgia that are in play. If Steve Bullock does what John Hickenlooper did and what Jay Inslee did this week, decides mm -hmm. to go back and run statewide for Senate – um, mm -hmm. seems to be pretty popular in that state. One win Donald Trump does. That's his claim to fame for his presidential campaign. Well, it seems like it'd be a pretty good starting point for the Senate campaign. So there's another pickup opportunity. And, Tim, I don't know, did you mention Iowa with Joni Ernst? I, I, I've left her off for now. You left her off. And I think she has, for whatever reason, and I, it's probably a lot of you know fool's gold, um, she has – crafted an image that seems more moderate than when she came in. I really don't think she is, but she's created that image, and so therefore she's made herself a tougher candidate, although the pickups that Democrats made in two Iowa House seats, and then there's a good chance that Steve King uh, may lose this time if all these congressional districts uh, have been put in play by Democrats, maybe they can turn that into a um, Senate pickup, so I, I guess that would be another outside shot you wouldn't um, give up on. And so that's kind of my, you know, target list, my plan in order in case something falls through. 
Okay. Now mm-hmm. your first your first thing though that has to happen is 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 is, is what basically I said that Trump not yes. only needs to lose but he needs to lose by a convincing margin. And particularly in a state like Alabama, um, uh-huh. you might can get you might could pick up three seats. Although if Trump if if Trump loses close, you could pick up three seats, and then you'd have the vice presidential tiebreaker. Uh, on and on and on, and then it, and I'll tell you another thing: it gets into who the nominee is, because mm-hmm. people pointed out I thought if Elizabeth Warren was the nominee and you had a three seat advantage, she then and we don't know who she'll pick for VP either, but if she um, then uh, leaves the Senate, Charlie Baker, Republican of Massachusetts, could pick another Republican to replace her in the short term. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. That's true. Um, yeah. And somebody pointed that out. It was an interesting thought. Um, Catherine, yeah. Tim, and I laid out more state by state. What are some of your thoughts on some of these states we discussed? Well, I'm optimistic about Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I spoke about um, Alabama. I, I tend to – I think it's a long shot for us to keep Doug Jones. I know most incumbents win, as David said, but I just think it was a fluke that he got a – got elected the first time he is being very um you know he's in the state a lot he does a lot of um constituency services i know this because we because my in my job we keep a track of that um so i i th- i just think it's going to be tough um i think susan collins it, it's that's right right susan collins mm-hmm. you know i always i always get them mixed up um I think she's, uh, I think David's absolutely right that she's been, you know, claiming to be a moderate for a long time, but then never really is. And uh, I think her Kavanaugh vote and then her just general um, sort of waffling might be frustrating uh, Maine voters, especially because he's, because, um, the president isn't is very popular there. So I think that is a possibility. Um, you know, the other ones, I think it's a, a lot is going to depend on who the who our candidate is. I think it's really going to make a difference. And how much money we can raise and how um, how strategic our, um, our elections are and our um, campaigns. I think it's going to be really important that we are, uh, you know, we can't have any gaps. We can't have any you know, macaca moments. We can't have any, um, we need to be ready when the other side screws up so that we're, you know, can respond quickly. We need to have very, um, very robust communications, uh, teams on the ground, you know, responding quickly to everything that's happening. And, uh, you know, those are, those are all expensive and, uh, uh, difficult uh, strategies to pull off. So everything has to go right. We have to be we have to be ready. Yes. Well, I want to pick out one state that's close to our hearts. That's why I'll vote in it. We all had Georgia, like me, um, and I think that's for a reason. Um, we we kind of thought the state would be more competitive, and it still could be. But right now, uh, Teresa Tomlinson got in the race early. Um, 
seems to have the lead pretty pretty close, uh, pretty comfortably. But she didn't meet her fundraising goals. Uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, the only other you know announced candidate, Ted Terry. Not sure what his fundraising goals are, but I'm sure we'll see his um, you know disclosure at some point. But I get the sense that he's not raising money in big numbers either. A lot of other candidates have not gotten in this race. And, um, you know, Sarah Riggs Amico, she filed for bankruptcy. Odds are, or her company did, she's probably not going to get in this race. We had a friend of the show that told us, and we won't tell you more than that, about a candidate about to get in the race. I hadn't seen hide or hair of that. It'd be a really exciting candidate. And one final thing, uh, Joe Lieberman's son, who now lives in the state of Georgia, he's looked at the race. That was weeks ago. If he was looking at it, it's sure taking a long time. Um, Tim... Is it just me, or is, is Georgia, that Senate seat, not going as well as hoped? No, it's not. Well, I mean, it started with Stacey Abrams. I mean, the golden scenario is Stacey Abrams gets in that race. Uh, no matter how good the person is who will be the nominee, they are not going to be her. Uh, I mean, she is a national figure. Uh, she she has an electric personality. People get excited when they're around her. People get ready to crawl over broken glass to vote for her. And there's not that level of excitement now that she's not in that race. Purdue is pretty strongly tied to Trump. Again, I want to mention the economy. When the economy goes bad during election cycles, voters also sometimes wish to punish their congressmen and their senators because they consider these more local personalities that they can reach out and touch or, or in this case, punish. You know, the economy in my state's bad, my senator's running i.e., my senator's not doing his job, and I'm going to vote against him. Uh, I wanted to put Georgia, you know, in my third scenario with Colorado and Arizona and Maine, but I cannot. I had to put them in the next grouping. I mean, all four of those states, Georgia, Montana, North Carolina, and Kansas, are, are, are all, you know, fairly long shots. They're not out of bounds, but... Uh, no, Georgia, Georgia is, is not as much on the map as it would have been if uh, Stacey Abrams had run. That being said, though, guys, it looks like Georgia may be a battleground state in the presidential election. That could make things very interesting in, you know, the Senate election. I can actually picture uh, a few voters that that might vote for the for for Trump and for the Democratic nominee. I'm trying to find voters though that are going to be hardcore Democrats that are going to say, you know, I think I'll vote for David Perdue as well. Uh, we would have a little bit better chance in a close election of a little crossover vote that I don't think Purdue would get. Would you agree with that? Catherine? Yeah, I don't think Democrats are going to vote for David Purdue. Right. 
But yeah. I, do, I, I see your scenario where they might where where some moderate Republicans might vote for Trump because he's the president and they want to vote for a Republican, but they might they might uh, punish Purdue right. for not being very effective for just being right. kind of vanilla. And, and we're talking about suburban um, women here. I believe that that is the key right there. If there's going to be a crossover vote, they're already a little irritated with national Republicans as it is now. Who might they take it out on in the donut counties around Atlanta? Their United States senator. Would I be right about yeah. that? Yeah, and I think yeah. Teresa Tomlinson is a great candidate to appeal to those voters, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I and think, I, just honestly, say, I can't. I can't give any names. I can't give any more information. But I'm quite sure that at least two more candidates are going to step into the race, maybe as soon as tomorrow. I have to think that somebody gets in at some point. I will tell you this. um, I think Teresa Tomlinson's a fine candidate, and I couldn't imagine dialing for dollars. It sounds uh, like, you know, daily root canal. Um, But I think if she were given more money, um, and she probably justifies more money than A, she's been getting, and B, certainly like Catherine, you mentioned, Kentucky's a long shot, even if Mitch McConnell is sitting in the seat. Yeah. Um, so anytime anybody gives to her, they should definitely give to Teresa yeah. Tomlinson. Cause now, much that, more brings up, that brings up another point. Did you notice till this moment nobody had mentioned Mitch McConnell? Well, Catherine did mention the Kentucky seat. Uh, um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, yeah, so. I, I don't, uh, I, I wish, I wish. There was some I, – I, I can't believe we can get him. I, I want to believe it, yeah, but I, I, I just I can't do, believe I'm, it. I'm right there with you, Tim. <laughs> no. yeah, I, I, just, I think basically in November of this year, if Andy Bashir wins and wins by several points, then maybe you can start to see a better scenario. If Matt Bevan is able to win re-election, you pretty much know as controversial and unpopular as he is – there's no way you're going to get Mitch McConnell in a federal race because Kentuckians are much more likely to vote Democrat on a well, local and, statewide basis than our national race. Especially in that state. Uh, anybody that votes for Donald Trump is definitely going to vote for Mitch McConnell. We're not going to see a big crossover vote there, I don't think. And Donald Trump is, in, in, in if he runs a terrible race, He's going to win Kentucky. That's going to happen, and he's and, and it's very highly likely he wins Kentucky by better than 10 points, even even if he has a bad night. I mean, a bad night for Donald Trump nationally. He should still win Kentucky by 10 points, and that, and that should be enough for McConnell to slide on three. Yes. Um, well, let's talk about the next uh, topic and uh, this, to me, is a topic that just came up today, but it is a fascinating topic because any time the thing, uh, a topic gets planted nearly 200 years ago and affects politics today, it really tells you about one, you know, why you need to learn your history and, and why it's important. And um, on Political Wire, on CNN, and on the Cherokee Nation Twitter page, all three sources, it was announced that um, this weekend that the Cherokee Nation has decided to invoke a nearly 
Guys, I, I, I apologize. That was not a special audio. That was me trying to find the source notes with the Chiefs' name on it, and CNN always has to play you an ad when you view their site, <laughs> even if you don't want it. I thought some music was playing in my yard. It's like, what is that? Anyway, um, well, nevertheless, so the Cherokee Nation is invoking this clause that they signed at the Treaty of New Echota, just a right. few miles from where Tim and I are sitting, and really, Captain, about 70 miles north of where you are, um, in Gordon County, Georgia. They signed this treaty back, um, uh, I want to say, in the late 1830s. Um, 1835. 1835. Right, right towards the end of the year, they signed this treaty, and one of the clauses was is they get a representative in the United House States of Representatives, because I think at that time there were no delegates. Um, so we'll have to talk about the ins and outs of that. But they want to invoke this clause, and they want a delegate to the House of Representatives. They've already named um, the person they want to appoint first, and I'm sure later it will be through an electoral process. Kim Teehee, who is the uh, Vice President of Governmental Affairs for the Cherokee Nation. Um, Catherine, do you find this story just totally intriguing, and kind of what are your thoughts about how this might unfold? I think it's fascinating, and uh, I'm I'm just shocked that we haven't that we haven't this hasn't come up before, that we haven't um, had this discussion, and that there isn't a representative or a, you know delegate already a delegate already. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how everyone responds to it. Since it's yeah, I, so fresh, we'll see. We'll see how Twitter responds, and then how everybody else responds. Well, and, and honestly, Twitter can respond any way Twitter wants to respond. It's um, how do the people um, that the the powers that be respond? Now, it seems like Nancy Pelosi is going to have to say in this, and we really don't know the politics of the Cherokee Nation. We don't know the politics of Kim Teehee. She might be a you know card-carrying member of the GOP. I guess we just assume for some reason she's going to be Democratic, but that's irrelevant. If, if the treaty was signed, she could be the most conservative person in the House of Representatives. She deserves, or the nation deserves to have representation if the treaty was signed that way. But um, Tim, let's say that somebody along the way, and it could be the executive branch with Donald Trump, it could be the legislative branch. Somebody doesn't want to seat her. Uh, doesn't, doesn't want to give the Cherokee Nation and this uh, clause in their treaty. Where does it go from here? Well, that is a good question. I assume it would then go to the uh, to the courts. Yep. Um, I don't see where else it, where else it could go. It, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Out in Oklahoma, yeah. which would be the main group of them, you got nearly four hundred thousand Cherokees out there. That's where the brunt of them went, you know, when they were uh, removed from this area. Uh, there's, I think, fifteen, sixteen thousand of them up around Cherokee in North Carolina, and there's one more group I forgot where there were, but the biggest bunch of them, uh, the bunch that would pull the the political weight, would be these people out in Oklahoma. I assume what that would look like would be what Washington D.C. and what our five territories do. They send a non-voting member to the House. I mean, there's no way they're going to give them 
uh, um, member vote because then Oklahoma or whoever would have to get another electoral vote in a congressional district to go with it. Um, so I I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't know which party would give them a more receptive audience. I assume it would be the Democratic Party would give them a more receptive audience right now for to seat a person. Uh, I don't know what an election of that delegate would look like, being that they are divided into three separate areas of the country. Um uh, so I, I I just don't know how they would you know arrive at this or, or or what they would do and what's Donald Trump gonna say about this or is he gonna say anything? Well, well, the, and and that's gonna be another aspect. Now, there's a few more things I wanted to talk about out of this. Um, one person I think actually that might be an interesting opinion to find out on this is Tim you're and I's representative Tom Graves because. Tom Graves is the representative, and I believe he's from Gordon County, where this uh-huh, treatment he is from. Um, so other than folks maybe out in Oklahoma and possibly western uh, North Carolina, it, it would be one of the more interesting voices to see what he says since it's the new Achota Treaty. And if you look on their Twitter page today, across the banner, it has uh, the clause in that new Achota Treaty. It mentions it's in Georgia uh, and what have you. Um, but the next thing is – is is it come out? I, I couldn't find it, uh, but were there other Native American tribes, nations that um, thought to do this or had the chance to do this based on how they ceded their lands? And could there be a Comanche, a Sioux, an Iroquois? Uh, you know, we can keep going on that possibly have the same clause, and could there be more representatives like this? Do you know, Tim? I doubt it. I doubt it because of of one thing. The Cherokees, although forced out, they 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 did not fight a war to keep their lands. They they willingly signed a treaty uh, <laughs> at gunpoint, I might add, uh, and and had to leave. Uh, the Sioux fought, you know, to the bitter end. These other tribes. I mean, took up arms and fought the U.S. government. They, they probably their, their signing of a treaty was probably the signing of a surrender document, and then they were just thrown onto lands that no one wanted. Uh, so I, I think the Cherokee, what we're looking at here, might be fairly unique uh, to them. What I would like to know is this, guys. Why has this not come up long, long, long before now? Yeah, that's what I thought, too. And there's probably a question for the chief of the Cherokee Nation and maybe Kim T. down the road. Why Why did somebody not think about this before? Hey, maybe it's like the Denmark thing. Somebody knew about it. They just didn't talk about it. Um, but you, you would think that, yes, they would have invoked it at some point uh, prior to this. Uh, and then, of course, why are they doing it now? Is it that they're so outraged by the current governmental situation that they're like, now's the time to act? Or is it just, let's just, you know, do this because we need to. I mean, it's so fascinating. Another thing, um, you know, we were mentioning about delegates and about representatives. Okay, let's say that they um, 
you know, have a delegate there. That person then gets voted on by the members of the Cherokee Nation. I wonder what people will say, and there could be some legal election scholars have to get into this. Can you vote for the repres- the delegate from the Cherokee Nation and vote and say Oklahoma's 4th District? And, and I don't know which Oklahoma district, uh, you know, most of the Cherokee Nation's in. I'm just using that as an example. That Oklahoma district, would that be considered, you know, like double democracy or, or something? I, I wonder what comes out of that. Any ideas, Catherine? <laughs> yeah, I don't, know how, I don't know how that would work. Yeah. I, I, I have, I, I mean, I haven't had a chance to really think about how that process would work. Yeah. And and here's the thing. I don't know how big the Cherokee Nation is. What if the Cherokee Nation was two million people and it justified having two congressional representatives, two delegates? No, um, no. Uh, no, you know, no, that, no. And I know that may factor in with Puerto Rico there's, and there's uh, probably, Washington, D.C. I can tell you that there's probably like 400,000 of them uh, nationwide. Yeah. There, there's, there's a little over 350,000 in Oklahoma, and like I said, like I think 16,000 up around Cherokee, and there's one other enclave of them somewhere, and I can't remember where it is, but there's around 400,000 altogether. That's really about two-thirds of a congressional, you know. Yes. Yeah, and, and it's just something to think about. And, and other so than maybe the one. Sioux, and the Sioux are actually broken down into um, sub, you know, tribes or nations, if you will. So um, I, it may be the largest or second largest um, uh, Native American tribe in America um, because of the way things played out. There wasn't a war. They um, lived a more gray and uh, economy uh, in the you know Georgia and the Carolinas and whatnot. Um, well, let's kind of go into the other political part of this. Okay, it could really factor in with any presidential nominee against Donald Trump, but let's say that a lady that was born in Oklahoma that through family lore thought she was of Native American heritage and probably thought she was of Cherokee heritage just based on what her family had passed down, you know, from the stories, and then through the DNA testing, does have, you know, Native American um, blood. Elizabeth Warren's the nominee. Then let's say Donald Trump does his whole routine where every single time he refers to her, he calls her Pocahontas. We know he did it with Hillary Clinton calling her Crooked Hillary. He calls her Pocahontas, Pocahontas, Pocahontas. You have Kim Teehee that's now in the House of Representatives, and because this has raised her profile. And then she gets, very rightfully so, horribly offended by this and decides to defend Elizabeth Warren. And the Cherokee Nation pretty much says, we defend her on this. This is just ridiculous, the way you react to it and the way it kind of played out. She really thought she was part of our people. Um, We're completely offended. How would that play into the election, do you think, Catherine? Uh, not much. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, I, I think it would be a blip. Not, it wouldn't have much impact at all. I mean, I think if we have good turnout from Native Americans, it's probably good for Democrats. So it might, it might get help a little bit, but I don't think it has much impact. And it's quite a, it's quite a theoretical. 
situation. I, I can't imagine that between now and November 2020, we would have a voting member from the Cherokee Nation in our Congress. I think it's going to take a lot longer for that that to happen. Yeah. We have Eleanor Holmes Norton. We have a delegate. Um, I I think at that point, not, you know, like a a, a true full-fledged voting member, Um, but somebody that would have a a profile because she has a profile. When they they are talking to D.C. uh, issue, you see her. She's probably better known than a hundred at least of the voting members um, nationwide. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Tim, well, let me kind of add another wrinkle to it. Let's say, you know, Donald Trump keeps on Pocahontas, Pocahontas over and over and over. And many members of Native American tribes, through the fact that now they have some semblance of governmental representation on the federal level, you know, basically tell Donald Trump to stop. This is racism. It it would be akin to um, you using the N-word towards African Americans, what have you, and you keep doing this or some character that's the same. Um, And it gets him to actually stop. It actually backs him down for once. How much would that play in? Well, that would be classified as a miracle because nothing has stopped Trump and backed him down from doubling down on just the craziest things he said uh, to this very day. That's not in Donald Trump's persona. Donald Trump is simply not going to do that. And I also agree with Catherine that uh, as far as votes, it, it would be a negligible thing because we're talking what maybe. Among the Cherokee Nation, maybe 100,000 votes scattered around the country. Most of them would be in Oklahoma, a very red state, where even though most of them probably already vote Democratic, it wouldn't make much difference at all, unless a lot of other people in the country would get strongly offended by it. The problem there, guys, is people are just almost numbed by now because of all of the crazy things Donald Trump has said and done, and it would just be another thing in a long list. Now, I do agree on one thing. A non-voting member of the Cherokee Nation going up there would have a high profile because of the uniqueness of who they were, like Eleanor Holmes Norton has. Even though she has no voting power in Congress, she has a bully pulpit and a very large microphone. And so could this person, not only uh, talking about, you know, the Cherokees of Oklahoma, but, you know, the Indians of northern Alaska, the Eskimo peoples, the Native American peoples all over the country. This could be a very important position. Uh, and, and, and I still go back to this. How is our president going to view that, and would it ever get to first base if our president did not get on board with it? I would think it would never see the light of day for a vote, at least in the U.S. Senate. To okay this, so yeah, and and, and then it it goes to the courts, and it'd be interesting right. to see what happens. I don't think this is the last time we're going to discuss it. I, I'll yeah. say this: I don't think it just goes away. Either it gets approved, 
the approval process gets you know somewhat controversial, or there's a court case. And so I have a feeling we'll continue to discuss this at some point in the future. Well, one final topic on something we're going to discuss next week. Um, the Economist has come out with a tool that aggregates poll data, that uh, but makes it where you can cluster data by different demographic characteristics. Has nice, um, you know, charting of how the candidates are doing um, from poll to poll over time. And uh, while it's the Economist is the publication, they have hired friend of the show, Elliot Morris, who's been on a time or two in the past to kind of run up the project. And uh, Elliot's going to be our guest next week. And so we're excited about that. But we just kind of want to preview this tool. It's a project from The Economist. I actually heard about it uh, early in the week on Chris Higgins' Election Ride Home podcast. That's where I found it. And um, it was so funny because I had already booked uh, Elliot Morris to be on the show before it got that national attention. Um, but looking at the data, the three of us have all looked at it, and I'll go first on this one since I went last on the last one. Um, an interesting piece of data, a finding, because you looked at the data, and the one I kind of pulled out was that you can do it by college and non-college educated, and looking at the, um, the vote. A lot of candidates, the vote was similar. There wasn't a break, or it would be among every single racial group, you would be more popular or less popular with college-educated, non-college-educated. It kind of correlated. Um, for instance, Elizabeth Warren's more popular pretty much among every race that's college-educated. Joe Biden's more popular with every race that's non-college-educated. But there was an exception. Cory Booker, um, African-Americans that are uh, non-college-educated are more likely to like him than college-educated African-Americans. It may be only a point or so. It's not a huge difference. But then if you reverse that with white voters, he's more popular among white college-educated voters than non-college-educated voters. And I just found that interesting uh, about Cory Booker. If you look into it, there's many other things you can find like that, and that helps with that micro-targeting that, Catherine, your ad plan would call in where you really get down and reach voters on a granular level. Um, when you looked at it, what were some things you found? Well, I'm just trying to – okay. The thing that I found that I thought was interesting was of all the candidates – I think. Hold on. Oh, nope. What? Do you want to yeah. pass to Elizabeth, Tim and come back? No, 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 okay. no. I'm ready. I'm ready. Go ahead. So for most of the candidates, uh, I thought it was interesting that they looked at people's second choices. So um, so voters who prefer X are also considering Y. And most of them, their second choice was Biden, except for Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg who for Harris voter for Warren voters their next choice was Harris and for Buttigieg their next place was Warren and Biden wasn't down until third or fourth i just thought that was a i mean i don't know what it means but i just thought it was interesting that pretty much everyone else was considering you know Bernie Sanders or, or Biden and then Biden or Cory Booker and then Biden except for those two candidates so i just found that 
interesting. I don't know what it means, like I said, but I, I was interested by that. How about you? Maybe Ellie can tell us next week. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing that stood out to me, uh, I, I did know that uh, Biden was dominating the uh, senior vote, 65 and plus voters, primary voters. Now, of course, these are the most likely voters to vote. Uh, but when you look at the other age groups, one thing I think that is just stands out strongly. This age thing is a strong indicator that either Sanders or Warren must leave this race if either one of them is to win. They are splitting too much of the same vote in all of these age groups. Biden is not strongly winning any of these age groups except the 65 and older, which he has, you know, pretty much solidified, which gives him, you know, a, a pretty good healthy lead. I still submit that Sanders and Warren are, are knocking each other off and one of them really is going to have to exit this race so that the other one can, you know, uh, coalesce that other vote together. What do you think? I think Elizabeth Warren is going to do better in the actual elections, and I don't think uh, polling res- – or not polling, but electoral results are going to face Bernie Sanders, and she may be his – or he may be her undoing. She may, uh, you know, be one of the top – two or three candidates in every single uh, state, and he just won't give up, and and she won't get traction, because I really just don't think Bernie Sanders is going to get the nomination, and I, and I think he would be a risky choice uh, to go into the general election, because it would just you know, be both sides would be anger, and there wouldn't be a good contrast. You know, David, I agree with you that he won't give up, and I think there's two reasons why. Number one, his uh, followers are very devoted, and they're not going to shake. And number two, I do believe that Bernie Sanders uh, will have enough money, you know, to stay in the race yeah. the whole time, whether he's winning, losing, or drawing. But I think that his uh, staying in the race may cost her the nomination. I've, I've got to agree with you on that. Yes. Um, Catherine, do you, what do you think on that with Elizabeth Warren and um, Bernie Sanders dynamic? I agree. With, I agree. I wish Bernie would drop out so she could, um, so the votes would coalesce around her. Yeah. I absolutely I, agree with I, you that I think having two angry men running for president is not a good thing. I don't think that. I think we need some kind of contrast from the Democrats, and I think. Uh, Senator Shouty McShouterson, as I like to call him, is is not is not the candidate for this for 2020. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of it's kinda like it, the stereotypical movie thing where the, the the kid has two grandpas and one's grumpy and one's happy. So even if you did have two older people and one of them was Biden, you'd at least have the happy grandpa. Um, yeah. it, 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 I mean, it'd be like if you had two grumpy grandpas, sucks to be you. Um, you, you know, you just have double I, of that. 
I, 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 know we're running, I know we're running over, but I need to make this point. I keep pointing at Bernie Sanders here for one reason. He, he, is, he is strongly courting progressives. Elizabeth Warren really needs those progressives in her camp. If she were to get Bernie Sanders progressives on board with her, she could win the nomination, perhaps. She's not going to win it if Bernie Sanders stays in this race. I just don't see the numbers there. Yeah, and you're, Tim, you're right, but I want to go over with another comment, too, and this kind of irks me from 2016. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is so progressive. He's too progressive for the Democratic Party to be a member, and, and that still kind of gets to me as somebody that served on so many levels of the Democratic Party. It's kind of like – um, somebody that stands outside the church and shakes their fist and says, "I'm holier than you," you know, you're, you know, I, I'm more devout than you. It, to the people inside the, the building, it's kind of like these people are in the party. It is the more left leaning of the two parties. Um, you know, you take that step first. You, you you move the the control over to the Democratic side of things, and then you might move the party if you still feel it needs moving. Um, but he's so progressive, he can't be a Democrat. Well, then maybe he's just too progressive for us. <laughs> and that's kind of a yeah, thing. I agree with you about that. It, it irks me too. I try not to talk about it very much because it, it really sets off uh, some of our more progressive, uh, you know, members of the party. But I agree with you. I mean, I, mm. well, I mean, maybe they need to look too. I, I just, um, you sometimes you it's kind of like if you said man i need to go on a diet and i need a better exercise plan and you immediately went on some 400 calorie diet and started trying to run a marathon at times in life you have to cut back a little and then you exercise a little and then you gradually tune it up um i I just uh, you go so far so fast uh, either a you get kind of what the tea party did to america the other way or, or b um you just you don't get anywhere because people either you scare people off or it's too fast too soon and you lose control right back. And so I think, um, you know, adding to President Obama's legacy step by step by step, um, it's just a more normal pattern, um, if you will. Well, I'm excited about next week when we have Jordan Morris of uh, The Economist and The Cross Tab. I'm sorry, Elliot Morris. Um, joining us uh, to talk about his new tool with The Economist. Till then, it's been the Cudsy Vine. Okay. Good night, night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. With a strong and united 